Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. Welcome to the Modern Bar Cart Podcast, a space set aside for cocktail creativity and exploration. As always, I'm your host, Eric Koslick. If you're one of our regular listeners, you can already tell that this episode is a little bit different. What's with this soundtrack? That's new. Well, this episode is kind of special. Usually we interview a cocktail or home bartending expert, or we examine certain bartending topics and figure out what tips and tricks we can take from the pros to help you become a more effective home bartender. But today, we've got a bit more of a journey on our hands, one fraught with controversy, flavor, and more than a little bit of vodka. Usually when we record an episode that focuses on a specific spirit, I actually sit down with a distiller who produces said spirit. We talk for a bit and that's a wrap, but vodka presented us with some interesting challenges that prompted us to gather a whole bunch of different voices and perspectives. Our key questions this episode are, why does vodka get such a bad rap in the cocktail community? Does vodka have flavor? And what separates a good bottle of vodka from the rest of the herd. To help answer these questions, I invited a few friends to help guide us on our journey through the allegedly flavorless landscape of this controversial clear spirit. My name's R.B. Wolfensberger. I'm the lead distiller for Grey Wolf Craft Distilling in St. Michael's, Maryland. My name is Ala Polyakova. I grew up in a Russian family. We drink vodka um, at every occasion possible, so I feel like I do have um, the Russian chops behind me. So I'm Alex. I guess you need to identify the voices, right? Yeah. So um, I'm a, a guy who uh, you know works here in D.C., living it up. Yeah. So I I generally introduce myself when people learn about the podcast as as the guy who has a very interesting family, and I'm the guy who had to be the suit. That's Alex Luboff and Jordan Wicker of the Speaking Easy podcast. And don't let their self-effacing nature deceive you. They're home bartending experts, and their podcast is one of the best resources out there for all things booze-related. I assembled this cast of characters because they all have superpowers. RB is a distiller who's been deeply immersed in producing craft vodka. Ala is here for her cultural insights to remind us that vodka has a history and a whole cultural mythos that most Americans are completely unaware of. And the speaking easy guys, well, <laughs> someone get me a large pole. Anytime you can get a dipstick analogy in there, it's worth it. I don't think that the opinion you just shared is founded in anything at all. It's staying in my mouth longer than the other ones. This is going to end up being the regrettable evening I had with the speaking easy podcast. <laughs> Let's just say they're here for a bit of added color. This episode is centered around a tasting where Alex, Jordan, and I dig into a few bottles of vodka made with different base grains and from different places in the world to try and get to the bottom of the flavor debate. Our discussion, as you might imagine, is wide-ranging and it's actually pretty thorough, but 
We're going to scatter in some thoughts from RB and ALA whenever there's an opportunity to add context or a difference of opinion. Before we crack open the bottles of vodka, I pulled Jordan and Alex aside separately and asked them for some general thoughts about vodka. Here's what they said. I don't use vodka, generally speaking. I generally lean towards and prefer classic cocktails, and I like them to be booze forward. When I say booze forward, I mean featuring the flavor of the, the liquor that I'm using. So I like an old-fashioned. I like a strong Manhattan. I like a gin martini. And I like, just generally speaking, boozier cocktails. I like things that are strong. And, and vodka is something that, uh, it's, a, it's a liquor that I just, you, if you bring it forward, means that you have a more flavorless drink or, or, or a drink that lacks flavor. As a blank slate, as a vehicle for alcohol, vodka does a great job. If you are super creative and want to blend a bunch of different ingredients together, vodka has a, a space. Right, gotcha. So vodka for you is an absence, not a presence. Yes. And for you, booze forward is the characteristics of a base spirit. And yes. the caveat there is it needs to be a base spirit if, with characteristics. If, if, if Yes, right. So if, you're, if you are drinking a scotch cocktail, you want the smokiness, you want the peatiness. Um, if you're drinking a bourbon cocktail, you want the caramel or the vanilla or, or the nuttiness or, or whatever you're pulling from there. If you're drinking a gin, obviously the juniper, and then if it's uh, citrus forward or, or, or that sort of thing, you're, pl you're, you're playing off of those notes that exist. In vodka, you're not playing off anything, you're bouncing it off of a mirror. So you're, you're just throwing flavors at it and shooting those flavors right back at you. So Alex, what are your thoughts on vodka? Oh man, uh, so many. Uh, mostly uh, that uh, I'm not uh, I'm not terribly thrilled with uh, with you know vodka centered drinks. I mean, I like I like Moscow Mules fine. I mostly view vodka as a vehicle to infuse with or to whatever. I I've never you know I, I don't know maybe I've picked up on some of the the elitism or the the pretentiousness that some bartenders approach vodka with that you know it doesn't have a flavor which it doesn't. Uh, I'll hold to that for a long time, <laughs> um, you know, and and that you know because it doesn't have a flavor, it doesn't make it very interesting. But in a way, I guess I view vodka as very utilitarian. That's why I don't really I like to get, to get philosophical here. <laughs> John Stuart Mill would be very proud of me. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I kind of view it in that in that sense of you know it's 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 something I, I take with. It's a, it's a canvas. It's it's what I'm going to take and infuse it with lemons or with hazelnuts or whatever you know whatever direction I want to take it in and uh, and it's cheap which is also helpful for a utilitarian item so that, that is great comrade <laughs> Alex <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, we are the means of vodka production yeah. Yeah, let us seize them <laughs> these thoughts that Alex and Jordan just shared are based heavily in their own experience They've spent a lot of time refining their home bartending skills, and so from my perspective, these opinions are extremely valid, and to be honest, they're not all that different from what most Americans think. I mean, think about it. Where do you come across vodka most often? Who drinks it? The answer, most of the time, is people who don't really want to taste anything except a mixer, whether that's soda water and lime in the case of a vodka soda, cranberry juice, or any other fruity or sweet carbonated mixer. 
Seek out the foodies and they'll regale you with the flavor profile of their latest bottle of wine or bourbon or scotch. But you're not going to find too many people comparing notes on vodka. Here's RB's take on our American expectations when it comes to vodka and flavor. A lot of people say that would say, well, I don't like vodka. I don't like the taste of vodka. There's actually some validation to that because there's most of the vodka in this country is made the base is made in three distilleries in the midwest and most vodka distillers in this country are buying this base having it sent to them and some of them redistill it some of them just fill a bottle and put it out there so you're going to have people where i actually think there's a lot of validation in i don't like vodka i don't like the way it tastes because most of it's coming from the same places you know and there it's not being made from scratch what I do and what I'm passionate about is starting from grain and going to glass and doing it in a different way. And what we get a lot is people who taste Lone, our, uh, our first spirit that we released, Lone Single Malt Vodka. When they taste it, they're, they're like, wow, this isn't what I was expecting. You know, I, I actually like this. It has character. It has flavor. It's different. And, and, you know, you always just kind of say, thank you very much. I appreciate that. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking to myself, well, that's because probably nine of the last 10 vodkas you tried come from the same place. So if they're made from, if the origins are all coming from the exact same place, they're all going to taste the same. But is this focus on flavor purely an American thing? Here's Ola's take. So I grew up in the Soviet Union in the 80s. And growing up, uh, vodka was really the only alcohol that was available to us. And it was ubiquitous at every celebration, at every get together. Um, you know, your grandparents, your parents, your friends, et cetera, uh, would always take the crystal shot glasses, uh, which all the Russians have. And one person would give a toast and then everybody would take a shot. That was kind of, you know, that's how I grew up. Um, there was no sipping of vodka, of course. Um, so I never really thought of it as something that you needed to taste. As, you know, I think some Americans think of any spirit or like a bourbon where, you know, you could sit with a really nice uh, double shot glass and, you know, maybe with a little bit of water and, and kind of do a tasting of it. So here's what bothers me about all this. Up until this point in the show, we've been kind of talking about vodka behind its back making generalizations, and treating it like it's not in the room. Now, I'm no expert on vodka, certainly not compared to the folks in this episode, but I do think I'm a pretty decent judge of flavor, and I've got a pretty good understanding of the distillation process as well. I've talked to enough distillers to know that there's nuance beneath the general labels and categories into which we place most spirits. And so if it's possible to detect these subtle differences and make some guesses as to what accounts for them, I've got to guess that I and the guys from the Speaking Easy podcast would be up to the task. All right, we're going to describe what we've got going on here tonight. This is a non-blind vodka tasting in that we are sitting around a table and we all know exactly what is in front of us. And Alex Jordan and I are kind of doing a little experiment here to see if different vodkas with different base grains by different producers might have a different either flavor, if that can be said to be a thing with vodka, or mouthfeel, or perceived amount of booziness versus smoothness, I guess. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of the three indexes that we're gonna be using. It's, it's those things. And the bottles that we have on the table here are uh, my contribution, which is Reka, 
uh, R-E-Y-K-A, which is an Icelandic vodka. And the base grains there are wheat and barley. And then we've got Hansen's, right? And this is uh, the grape one. It's a Sonoma grape vodka, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's a big producer of grapes and wine here in the U.S. And then we have a whey vodka um, from New Zealand. And who brought this? I brought that. All right. And is anything else that's notable about that besides that it's distilled from... No, I, I thought you had... Milk you had solids? To buy the, you had to buy the curd separately. So. <laughs> All right. So uh, why don't we start off with the first kind of category, which is either it tastes like something or it don't taste like nothing. Yeah, all right. All right, and we'll start with the Reiko. Also, okay? for the listeners, these are all 80 proof uh, vodkas. Yes, so we did inadvertently standardize. Okay. So we just tasted the Reka. Or did we? Or did we? If it doesn't have flavor, can you say you tasted it? Like, uh, I, hmm. I want to say there's like a, nope, there's no, well, I thought I had something. So I'll be honest, I taste a bit of sweetness on it. Oh, I, yeah, mm -hmm. I oh, yeah. I um, but that's it. So I, I guess I don't get sweetness on all of them because so I, so that's there. So Reka, we've got a bit of sweetness. Um, why don't we try the Hansons? We, we do have some palate cleanser here, I guess. Oh, well. yeah. Thanks, Jordan. Swish a little bit. There you go. Hanson. So here we go with the with the grape. Hmm. I mean, I, yeah, I'm tasting some. I mean, it, it is. We are led into believing there's grape because there is, but I, I do get a little bit of that, and then maybe a tiny bit of sourness. Yeah. Tiny. Just uh, just a, a little bit. You don't, Jordan? None. <laughs> it tastes different. It certainly tastes different than the Rika. It does. I, I, I agree. I can tell a difference between the two. To, 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 to say that I think the difference is flavor uh, would be a stretch. I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I get the sweetness in both of them. Yeah. And, okay. And I smell alcohol on the, the Hansen. Okay. Um, but I don't think that that's anything that I'm coming off of as a, as, as flavor. I think, and I, and I feel the alcohol more in, in the Hanson. Yeah, I think I feel the alcohol a little bit more on the Hansons and I get the, I, I get a plumminess out of it. Like that kind of like a, it's the sweetness combined with maybe that slight oh, bit yeah. of grapeiness. So plum is, yeah, plum I is think, a better way of I think, I think that I'd agree with you there. I think they're both sweet and that, that's what I'm picking up. I think that the first one was uh, more like a sucrose sweetness and, and the second one is more of like a, a like a fruit sweetness, uh, okay. but uh, very, very marginal difference there, I think. That's a very kind of kind and nuanced take from somebody who's been bashing it for I, so long. I, uh, I, will say, I will say, he has a great palate. He's trained uh, it very well. Yeah. He a hasn't lot of, used a lot it on of, vodka. A lot of practice, and yeah. not a lot of practice on vodka. So. Um, yeah, I mean... And I think that this is actually, if you really want to get good at developing a palate, I feel like vodka's got to be the biggest challenge you've got. Because, yeah. It's interesting, yeah. Um, um, all right, let's see about this uh, milk solids vodka so flavor. <laughs> flavor on cheese leftovers. <laughs> I wonder what their facility looks like. Bunch of cows sitting some, around smoking is this, cigarettes. Is this the protein added uh, vodka? <laughs> yeah, you can go lift after this. 
<laughs> so this, I'm getting, this is probably the most traditional vodka mm. experience out of the three that I'm mm -hmm. getting of like, flashback to college, do rip a shot. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it stays in, it's staying in my mouth longer than the other ones. <laughs> is it building flavor over there too? <laughs> No, no, it's just I, alcohol. It's, I'm um, just getting pure alcohol. Yeah, yep. Um, I I agree. And Man, I have the worst palate in the world. I would though. say though, I would say though, this is everything we've tasted so far or um, sampled so far doesn't have strong notes of bad alcohol. You're not no. getting. You're not getting punch in the face with acetone. <laughs> I agree. And and so there's there's a, at least a degree of pleasantness in the fact that you're you're expecting to get poked in the eye and you're not. Yeah. Did we just manage to squeeze tolerant reactions out of two self-professed vodka skeptics? I think we did. And beyond that, I think we were actually able to identify some taste differences between the three vodkas we're comparing. Here's RB's thoughts on why you might want to make vodka that actually tastes like something. But isn't there some sort of definition of vodka at a regulatory level yeah. um, that, that specifies that it needs to be an odorless, colorless, kind of characterless mm -hmm. spirit? I love the standards of identity that the federal TTB, the government, lays out to us and the rules that we got to play by. And I, I think it's one, it's necessary because if you're a distiller, then you probably have a little bit of a wild side to you. So you need some regulation and some standards to play by, or you're just going to have stuff all over the place. But the, the actual regulation the TTB puts out is it must come off your still at 190 proof or greater. So 95% alcohol, and it must have neutral character. And I, I love that regulation because what's neutral to me might not be neutral to you. Or neutral by comparison yeah, to, to something. Others. Yeah. You know, they kind of, they, they leave that very vague. And I love that because it gives me that freedom to say, even though my vodka has character and it has flavor, to me, it's still pretty neutral. It's neutral compared to everything else we make around here. Also, think about the fact that if, if you're talking to someone who, say you're talking to a chef and you, the chef wants to pair like wines with dinner or spirit with dinner or, you know, something along those lines. Like if you're just making a flavorless spirit, then what's it go with? You know, like it, it, you it, it, part of uh, eating, drinking and being merry is that you have this like kind of combination of things going on. I would I, I've talked to a lot of people who have said, you know what, your vodka is great for like a lot of seafood, a lot of oysters and stuff like that, mm. because there's the salinity. And the oysters and the sweetness that comes from your vodka, and it's a really nice kind of back and forth. That if I'm just making something flavorless, how would that like you know complement one another? What strikes me about hearing RB talk about why he prefers to make vodka that tastes like something is that it sounds a whole lot like the logic that Alex and Jordan use when they explain why they tend to avoid vodka when mixing drinks, because flavor is good. It's interesting. Let's jump back into the tasting and talk about another flavor component, booziness or alcohol burn. Why don't we jump into booziness since we're kind of already on the, the yeah. topic. Yeah. Um, so the we just talked about um, tastes like something versus don't taste like nothing. And now we're talking boozy as in like kind of like 
taste slash feel the alcohol because I feel like alcohol is more than a taste. It's, mm-hmm. it's also kind of like that burning yeah. sensation. Well, yeah, no, I think that you can you can perceive alcohol on the nose and on the tongue and then in the throat. And so you get it at all stages. And I mean, that's true of any liquor, but because the absence of flavor, you I think you have to note it more with vodka. Yeah. So why don't we go in reverse here? I feel like we we've Oops. definitely identified that the uh, VDKA, the Vodka 6100, which is our um, way vodka from New Zealand, that one definitely has so far the most alcohol mm-hmm. booziness to it, I think, at all stages. Yes. I um, mean, yeah. mm-hmm. So now what about the Hansons and the Reka? I don't know. I think I'm getting the least from Hanson. The the grape vodka, maybe that's me, but it's definitely very subtle. It's like it's yeah. it, it's in the back. It's like a you know those fireworks that that they do the um like they they have the the primary burst and then after a couple seconds it's got that little crackle that falls yeah. down later. Oh. That's kind of the way I'm experiencing that. It's like you drink it and there's no alcohol and then yeah. it kind of flares uh, across the back of your back and sides of your palate, but it's only there briefly. And I yeah, I definitely think that on the nose just from that and I don't have a great nose uh, in general, but I think on the nose the grape vodka is, has the least alcohol. But then I'm sorry, which one? The middle, Hansen's the grape vodka. I uh you disagree. Yeah, I, uh of the, the, for me the the Rika on the nose, I get No, oh, well, you know what? I stick my nose really in there. Well, we also have these in different sizes yeah. and shapes of containers. We, we are so. we are not stand, I'm, we're not standardized. I am standardized yeah, and therefore my opinion matters more. <laughs> um <laughs> so I definitely get the strongest nose on the on the VDKA 6100. Yeah, yeah, um, I agree. I think that, I think that I get it, and it, this might be the difference in the glass. I need to be cautious of that, but I, I think I get it stronger out of the Hanson than I do out of the Rika. I think I get it. I think if I had to rank them in terms of booziness, I would go with the the VDKA as the the um, most boozy. Yep. And then the Rika as second booziest, and then I think I agree with. Yeah. Um, Alex, that the Hansons yeah. is least boozy. Yeah, I mean, and, and I don't know if that necessarily has to do with their base. I again, I I've never heard of anyone distilling way before, so I really don't know if that's like evidence of that. But I would almost expect a grape, a grape based spirit to to you know to be less boozy because you're knowing more about brandy versus um, you know versus a grain based spirit like Rika. Um, I would just kind of expect that it would be a bit um, sweeter and and you know in a way less boozy. So yeah, you don't expect that. I don't think that the opinion you just shared is founded in anything at all. <laughs> just gonna okay, good, great. Right, we're having a good time. <laughs> no, but I think I think so. There's there's a couple things. Like one, I think we're identifying that probably like based on what the tongue tells us or the palate tells us the base makes a difference. Um, on the other hand, what the what the distillation, like our knowledge of the distillation process tells us that really it, it shouldn't make all that much of a difference because it's all about like how much it's being, how, how many times are these mm-hmm. distilled? Yeah. How, many, how are they filtered? 
At this point in the tasting, the vodka was kicking in, and we were all starting to get a bit out of our element when it came to distilling knowledge. So maybe we should let the professional weigh in on how certain distilling decisions can affect the end product. How do things that affect flavor perception, but that don't have to do with like taste or smell. So here I'm thinking of like mouthfeel and then Mm -hmm. like that alcohol burn you were mentioning. How does that affect the experience and how do you as a distiller try to take those things into account? So the two things that I think uh, our vodka has a very soft mouthfeel. It's almost uh, viscous, you know, uh, velvety when you drink it. And I don't know for certain why it turned out that way, but I think it comes down to three things. What we talked about earlier, the grain of choice, malted barley. Um, there, I sometimes pick it up on some single malt scotches, that same like kind of viscous, like viscosity um, in the mouthfeel. Also, I distill slow. I believe in slow distillation. I don't rush it. You know, and I think when you take your time with anything, you know, in general, you're going to do better. And I think a lot of times there's this rush to pump out as much juice as possible from the distilling standpoint. Um, And I'm, we're sitting up here talking right now why my still heats up, you know, and I'm going to heat it up over two hours and take my time and flip the switch when I'm ready for it to to roll off. And, and, you know, I think that's part of the process too, of making a, a quality product is not caring about times you know and then the last part of it is filtration um if you once again do you turn on a pump and try to filter it as fast as possible to make it easier on yourself or do you slow it down and let it kind of gravity do its thing and run the filter um i do a charcoal filtration which isn't outside the box a lot of people do that with their vodkas but I do it at a very slow pace. And my whole thing is some of my days are 12 and 16 hours. I'll just make sure that those are my filtration days. It'll be the first thing I turn on and the last thing I turn off. And I'll just let it go. And I think that contributes to the mouthfeel. So now we know a lot more about what goes into the actual production of the vodka in our bottles. But what about how that vodka is branded and marketed to us as consumers? What about the visual and psychological touches that these vodka companies apply to their products to reel us in? So I'm going to go on a little marketing tangent here right now, Mm -hmm. and and we'll post some photos of this. Actually, I'll snap one right now so that I remember to. But, um, you know, (laughs) one of of the things about that I'm noticing here is that these are all very different bottles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, If you look at the Reka bottle... It's this very subtle. Uh, it's got this bluish tinge, and they say yeah. that they're like, "Oh yeah, we're you know they're 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 from Iceland, right? They're 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 talking like, oh yeah, we're using all this like glacier water yeah. to distill it, which is and, almost the color of a glacier, like they're going for, right? Right. And so mm-hmm. I'm I'm thinking with that that they're you know that's kind of maybe what they're going for a little bit mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I've heard that in Iceland everything is expensive. <laughs> and you pay a ton for this bottle of vodka no matter what. So you might as well like get in the Iceland spirit while you're yeah. drinking it. Yeah. And yeah. and who knows? I mean, so each of them has their own kind of identity. Well, well, yeah. That's, that's a good point too because uh, the Hansons bottle which is from sonoma looks more like a wine bottle exactly and it uh, uses a cork which i know right. you guys are making fun of me for noticing earlier but in a way you know that's that's kind of what they're going for they're going for the idea of like yeah you know the the this is, vin- this is the wine country it's fresh vodka. off the vineyard which it likely isn't they probably don't still at the vineyard and if they do good for them i'm happy for them but you know uh, it, it does have that kind of 
uh, appeal. And, and maybe that's because they're looking for tangential buyers, people who mm-hmm. are are like you know white wine drinkers. Of you know or, northern you know, Napa Valley white wine drinkers. Oh, this says or, Sonoma on there. Or, Honestly, when I picked it out in the store, the first thing I saw on there was Sonoma. Right, and and when the question is like, all right, so we have a tasteless, flavorless, yeah, or a flavorless, or whatever it's supposed to be by law. Um, <laughs> where does the value come from, mm-hmm. right? And so part of that is like you know the the chef says you eat with your eyes, right? right. And that's not wrong. Yeah. You know, like that's a big part of the flavor experience. So to, to have that bottle yeah. there and to have some of these associations like the Icelandic glacier, like the the Sonoma wine yeah. pedigree. Pastoral. Yeah. I mean, there, there might be something to that. You know, it's great that Alex, Jordan, and I were not only able to find flavor value, but also a sort of identity value for different vodka brands out there. But... Whenever I get the feeling that I've finally started to get a handle on something like this, I get this creeping sense of doubt. What if I'm missing the point? What if, and I know this sounds crazy, three American dudes sitting around a table doing a vodka tasting might be missing some of the cultural nuances of this spirit. This is where my friend Ala comes in. Having grown up in the former Soviet Union, she's an expert on the various rituals and traditions that go hand-in-hand with every bottle of vodka from St. Petersburg to Siberia. And she took me on a little trip through Russian history to show me just how ingrained this spirit is in the cultural psyche of that nation. There is a famous Russian saying that the only way to really understand Russian history is through the bottle. There's an idiom where we, we say, through the bottle. I mean, the only reason why Russians have Christianity is because of booze. I know that sounds strange, but what was happening and, you know, I'll, we're just going to take a little trip down to 988 AD. What, what happened was Grand Prince Vladimir of Rus, who said, you know what, the Slavic people need to um, adopt a monotheistic uh, religion. So he began kind of to receive envoys promoting, you know, their, their own faiths to kind of, he was shopping around. And geopolitically, Islam um, really made a lot more san- a sense in Russia because it was so close to the Middle East. But unfortunately, it banned alcohol. And at this point, Vladimir said his famous line, and I wrote this down just to tell you, uh, he said, drinking is the joy of the Rus. We can't go without it. So as a result, he adopted the Byzantine Orthodox Christianity. So the Russians, the only reason why uh, Russians are Christians is because uh, Islam banned alcohol. So way back when, the Russians gave Islam a hard pass so that they could keep drinking their booze. But what happens when other forces like government or the war effort try to intervene and put the kibosh on vodka? There were a couple of attempts on prohibition by Lenin Bolsheviks, but what happened, and this is super interesting and I think revealing, is that even though you know the country was going through war, World War One and a couple of other wars, and the peasants, even though they were really poor, they were using the meager uh, grains that they had to do samagon, and samagon is basically the, the American equivalent of moonshine. And so, you know, the people were dying from starvation, but instead of using the grain 
for bread or for anything, they were making alcohol because it was so already, you know, it was so ingrained in the Russian psyche that no, you have to have this. So I think overall, if you look at the grand sweep of Russian history, the moral of the story is that banning vodka is a bad PR move if you want to get the Russians to like you. I mean, there's some other themes in there too, but that's definitely one of them. Another part of my discussion with Ola that I found really fascinating was when she described all the little nuanced rituals that evolved alongside vodka in Russia. These are the following rituals that I I think every Russian kind of, without even thinking, just does. Um, So vodka's, uh, the bottle's always in the freezer, and it's lovingly called uh, a politrovka, meaning a half-liter bottle. And this comes from the 70s when the bottle cost three rubles and 62 kopecks, uh, which is, I know, a kind of a random number, but everybody remembers, even the people who were not born in the 70s, you kind of know that 362 is something, like you make a joke, like, oh, I'll give you 362 to, to leave the house now, meaning, you know, go ahead and buy half a liter bottle of vodka and have some fun. It's always served in these uh, 12-sided glasses. Um, some, sometimes they're crystal, sometimes they're glass. They're called granione stacane. They're just beautiful glasses that look like crystal. We, we say that uh, you have to split the bottle na traich, or split the bottle three ways. So, you know, you should always drink with at least two friends, and you should split the bottle, and you definitely finish it. And you pretty much celebrate anything with it. Uh, it could be a new tractor, a PhD, a cat's birthday, a wedding, or a good grade on the exam. Like you, you, you find a reason to quote unquote celebrate, but ultimately it all comes down to just spending time with your close friends and family. Um, but the lastly, most important ritual is the is a quote unquote standing bottle, which is um, which is a bribe. Uh, you know, during communist times, uh, there was there was the public sector. You know, uh, for example, healthcare, and you, but you couldn't, you didn't have a choice where you went. So to get anything during communist times, you had to kind of give more than what the government was paying that person to do the service for you. So you usually had the standing bottle to bring with you. You know, if you were going to have a plumber come to your house. You definitely gave him a bottle of vodka to make sure he did a good job. If you had a surgery, you're going to give at least one bottle of vodka, sometimes five, depending on the surgery. So almost like all of these services had a price tag in bottles of vodka. One of the themes I didn't expect to come out so strongly was the sense of social currency that vodka carries with it in Russia. I mean, the way Ola describes it, it's like a force multiplier. Sure, the plumber can fix your leaky pipe, but if you throw in a bottle of vodka, the job gets done right. Yeah, you can celebrate a birthday, but with a bottle of vodka, the celebration's going to be a lot more fun. And, yeah, you can go out for a night on the town, but as long as you've got your metaphoric three rubles and 62 kopecks, you're going to have a really good night out on the town. And I think that what unnerves us and our American sensibilities is that, for Russians... Flavor really doesn't have anything to do with it. It's not part of the equation, really. Here in the U.S., we've got a very cushy approach to things that we eat and drink. If I'm going to consume something, well, of course it needs to be tasty, because otherwise, what's the point? 
Why would I drink something flavorless? That doesn't sound entertaining. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got the Russian approach, which says it's okay to drink something flavorless and perhaps a bit harsh because I am sitting around a table with people I would die for if the famine or the KGB or the wolves came through that door right now. And because that is the Russian way, that is who we are. Here in the U.S., many of us don't have a shared memory of poverty or government oppression or constant freezing temperatures to throw things into perspective and help us appreciate how a clear, flavorless liquid can enhance pretty much any occasion. For Americans, most vodka is a liquid absence, a place where flavor should be, but it's not. For Russians, though, it's an invisible presence that makes everything just that much better. This is the tricky part of any in-depth episode, because... If you've done a good enough job trying to place yourself in the shoes of people on all sides of debate, you're going to end up with a bunch of different values and arguments that all have, at their heart, really valid points. Makes it kind of tough to simplify vodka down to a few bullet points and send you on your way. So maybe instead of looking at vodka as a noun, as an object to be defined, we should look at it as a thing that brings with it various types of energy. Instead of trying to put it in a box and end this episode by making a definitive statement about what vodka is or should be, instead, maybe we should be asking questions like, where is it headed? And how can we enjoy it better? I'm not enthusiastic about vodka. (laughs) I'm never going to be enthusiastic about vodka. But I can... Having tasted through these, you, you can say that, all right, I get the difference. Again, I, I, talk, I talk a lot about gin and college gin versus gin after college. And I think there's a lesson in there for me about vodka. He's basically saying, I don't like you, but I goddamn respect you. <laughs> Ultimately, I think the biggest thing that I've learned from Russian culture is to learn how to give a good toast. Because... I think we sometimes forget that as Americans, that drinking is really sometimes secondary to the experience that you're having. Um, So just give a good toast and your friends will love you for it. It, You know, we're getting to be a very crowded marketplace. Uh, Craft distilling is is blowing up and there's no real like end to the growth at this point in time that I see for at least five to 10 years. What's going to separate me from every other, you know, distiller out there? Well, you know, maybe I'll have to take my time. You know, maybe I'll have to do things a little bit different. And hopefully that creates a product that's different. In the end, I think what I learned from my travels and discussions this episode is that vodka is a hopeful spirit with a rich past, and that true vodka drinkers aren't just in it for the buzz. They're in it to celebrate good friends and good conversation. And if that means your cat's birthday is the excuse we use to gather around the bottle and give a toast, then so be it. No 
thanks to all our guests this episode for sharing their insights and their time. You can find Jordan and Alex by searching for the Speaking Easy podcast anywhere you go to download podcasts. You can find RB at the Lion Distilling Company in St. Michael's, Maryland, or by asking your favorite liquor store to pick up a case of his lone single malt vodka. And Allah, well, if you do a good enough job advertising your next vodka party, maybe she'll drop by and teach you how to give a proper toast. For full Creative Commons attributions to the music used in this episode, please head over to the show notes page, which is modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast forward slash episode dash zero two eight dash vodka for questions comments and lavish praise you can email podcast at modernbarcart.com or find us on facebook and instagram at modernbarcart as always thanks for listening and remember drink responsibly and experiment boldly